This episode was recorded at 9 a.m. Jakarta time on 18 May. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the program. Welcome back to Reformacy Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton, regional correspondent from the Straits Times of Singapore. Kevin O'Rourke, Reformacy Weekly Analytical Service on Indonesian Politics and Policymaking. Yeah, we had a great interview. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world, but I thought we might sort of put that to one side for just one week. And we just, uh, we, we got chatty, didn't we? We talked with a well, former ambassador. And you know how ambassadors get chatty? <laughs> well, this one did. <laughs> this, one, this, this one was good. He had a book and everyone. He is the diplomat. Netflix might want to actually hit him up. Um, Scott yeah, Marcial. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel guilty taking market share away from away from Netflix. They've got their writer strike right now, and they're suffering as it is. And they have yeah, these programs yeah, about these fake right. diplomats and made up stories. And here we have the real thing. Uh, that's tough for them. The, the diplomat. Yeah. Now, how is he the diplomat? Well, not only was he a former ambassador to uh, Jakarta, he was the guy who opened up Hanoi, uh, set up the, the first official mission there. And I mean, it, basically, I kind of feel like he had the job that I really wanted when I was in high school. When I was when I first started, yeah. came to know of, I, I took a, a final year, my senior year in high school. I took a, a geography class, and I was introduced to this thing called Southeast Asia. I mean, I was a I was an Ontario farm boy. I didn't know anything about anything outside of Canada. There's Florida. I knew that was hot. Um, but I was just so, so taken in with how f- fast things were changing in Asia. It just seems so interesting. This is back before the internet, so we had textbooks. And the pictures look great. All the, it, it looked lively. It looked fun. It was all these different cultures. I wanted to go. And he's doing that. Yeah. He actually did that in his career, starting in the Philippines, a desk officer for Laos and to Vietnam. And, uh, Covered Indonesia during the Christmon and came to Indonesia as ambassador and then went to Myanmar as ambassador up through 2020. Uh, also covered Southeast Asia as a principal deputy assistant director of state. So his career really spanned everything. And um, yeah, Scott Marcial was uh, you know, somebody who made an impact uh, on, during his tenure in Jakarta. And then uh, since retiring, he spent a year writing uh, Imperfect Partners. That's the book that just came out. And it's uh, uh, recollections of his uh, career, but uh, mainly really a discussion of all the topical themes and uh, concepts and trends that, that matter. And uh, it's a huge, hugely useful resource for anybody wanting to engage uh, with the region and wanting to understand Southeast Asia as a whole, which is exactly what's been lacking all these years. Yeah. Well, the, the fact that he was able to get it done. Like, get yeah. <laughs> is, is incredible. And I, I did a search on iBooks on Apple. I couldn't find it. Like, so this is, gives you an idea just like how, I mean, it's, it's rarefied. Um, the whole topic of Southeast Asia is still kind of rare academic talk, but we were able to have a really substantive conversation. So uh, if you, yeah. if you have a bookstore nearby, listening to this 
in the U.S. or if you can find it on Amazon. Can you order it on Amazon? Yeah, yeah, I ordered mine on Amazon. It was easy. Yeah, and um, right. what's incredible is that it's a really readable book. I mean, it's incredibly well written, and uh, there's actually a, a long section on Myanmar, which uh, I'm not an expert on on this, but it must be one of the best appraisals of Myanmar in, in quite a few years, and it's very comprehensive and it just kind of brings all the pieces together. It's very illuminating uh, for me. So. What was your takeaway from that chapter? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I've just heard all these things about the different characters and uh, politicians and uh, trends and, and Myanmar, and uh, it never really clicked, never really made sense to me how events in Myanmar could have unfolded the way they did. And uh, his uh, depiction of the sequence of events really makes that all very clear. And um, uh, it was really a page turner, actually. Uh, and then the, the book has a great index as well, which makes it really useful for research. It's a uh, 536 pages. I mean, it's a quite a, That's a poem. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, my yeah. takeaway from the talk was the diminishing returns um, that sanctions yield. You can wield sanctions only sparingly, and increasingly they backfire. I mean, the famous example of of, of them working is is the end of of the racist apartheid regime in, in, in South Africa that worked. Yeah. It brought Iran to the table initially in the first go around, but it's a lot of uh, middle fingers since then, since, uh, since Trump reimposed yeah. the sanctions. They backfire. And as Ambassador Marciel, Scott Marciel, that's one T M A R C I E L pointed out, America isn't the only game in town anymore. It's not 1991, he told the Asia Foundation. <laughs> World leaders do not wake up in the morning and wondering what America thinks of them. They might, but they could also counter that. Sorry, it's in my neighbor's dog. They might counter. They got they got China. They got Russia. Um, so there are other bags of tricks. And, and what American uh, policymakers, what Western diplomats should consider more is sweating the small stuff. Putting the money toward backing civil society, but not so much that it looks like that they're at, they're Western actors. Putting uh, scholarships, being front and center, not cutting off engagement, being there, uh, being on the ground, and yeah. and supporting change where you can find it. Don't cut it off. Yeah, and personal and personal connections and patience and. He emphasizes repeatedly in the book engaging Southeast Asia on its merits for the sake of engaging Southeast Asia, not for the sake of countering China or be using Southeast Asia as a foil for China, uh, because that's bound to backfire. Yeah, well, Southeast Asia famously is it doesn't have a lot of patience for great power politics. They want to set their own way, and I so I pose that question to him, like, what's the best way to counter China? And uh, he, he he took issue. With my with my use of the verb counter and uh, yeah right rightfully so uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more it's more balancing he was here he he also gave a, a story of what it was like to get a, a talking to from Marty Nata the Nata Gala wah I'm gonna have to say that again Marty Marty. <laughs> I've spoken to him in the past. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, sorry, Marty. And leave that in. And what I realized was that, you know, they're uncomfortable, obviously. But Marty's approach was, look, 
you guys have caused a problem. I got reporters out there who are, are baying for blood. So how are you going to fix it? <laughs> we're going to go out there and we're going to, and we're going to talk to him. And that's what he did. And the, the, the last thing I took away from that was kind of the temperament. You need to have that job. It should come as, it might come as a surprise that briefly in high school, I imagined myself joining the foreign service. I took the exam. Um, hmm. I'm now a podcast host. Anyway, so, <laughs> so it gives you an idea how that went. Um, but it's, he's a guy who, you know, pretty steady state, uh, thoughtful, engaging, uh, polite, um, knows his stuff, works hard, but very personable and human. Every day is similar to the next. You know, I get, got the feeling that, you know, you might have bad days, but he works through it. It's, it's uh, he is a public servant. He was a public servant for 30 years uh, and he worked long hours. And uh, it takes a special type of temperament to do that, working problems and not people. Yeah, and he talks about that and uh, makes that uh, yeah, an interesting point of discussion there in the uh, interview. And um, uh, yeah, but uh, we, we covered a lot of different themes: uh, the Quad, the Pacific, the um, economic partnership. ASEAN and the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, uh, the Just Energy Transition Partnership. So a lot going on in Southeast Asia, and it's uh, great to have you know, all these things kind of uh, encapsulated in, in one place right now in one, in one usable book. All right, so the book is Imperfect Partners. Order it on Amazon if you can't go to a bookstore. If you can go to a bookstore, that's even better. And it's Scott Marcial. Kevin, we're going to leave it there. Um, have a... <laughs> Have uh, have fun with your deadline for this week's uh, for this week's newsletter, and uh, we'll see you next week. Okay, great. Thanks, Jeff. See you then. You're the master, Marcial. Ambassador Scott Marcial, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you. Uh, you are the former ambassador to Indonesia from uh, 2010 to 2013, also a former ambassador to Myanmar. You've had uh, a, an extensive, remarkable career, and it's been condensed into uh, a newly issued published book, Imperfect Partners, the United States and Southeast Asia. Uh, ambassador Marcial, maybe you can talk us through just briefly your career and, and why you're the Forrest Gump of the U.S. State Department for Southeast Asia. As you mentioned on page one. <laughs> I just kept running. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I ended up starting my career. Uh, and your first assignment in the State Department, you don't have a lot of control over. Uh, but I volunteered to go to Manila uh, because I had written my master's thesis on it. So I went to Manila and just happened to be there during people power. Uh, the people power revolted overthrew Ferdinand Marcos Sr. Now we have to say the senior part. And then a little bit later, I was on the Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia desk at the State Department, my first Washington job. And we were working toward normalizing relations with Hanoi. So I was sent out to, to really lucky to be the first U.S. diplomat in Hanoi uh, after the war back in 1993 and was there through normalization, establishment of an embassy, that sort of thing. 
Um, then I was in Hong Kong, which isn't in the book because I don't consider Hong Kong Southeast Asia. I was in Hong Kong during the reversion from British to Chinese uh, rule. And then after a time uh, off doing other things uh, in the State Department, I came back uh, to Southeast Asia in 2005 and spent the last 17 years of my career there, uh, including uh, some jobs in Washington covering Southeast Asia, Deputy Assistant Secretary and uh, covering Southeast Asia, and was uh, ambassador for ASEAN affairs, uh, which led to then having a, a, a person in Jakarta as the ambassador to ASEAN after me, and then Indonesia, back to Washington, and then finishing in, in Myanmar. And Myanmar was, you know, I got there a week before Aung San Suu Kyi's inauguration, so it was kind of the high point, maybe in, in the, the trajectory of that country. Uh, through the Rohingya crisis, which was horrific. And uh, then I left before the coup, which was obviously and is just a, a tragedy of historic proportions. And uh, your your first, uh, maybe your, one of your early jobs in the 1980s was desk officer for Laos. And people in the department said that your career was clearly going nowhere. Yeah, well, Laos, I think... Um, after the early 1960s, uh, when Laos briefly got a lot of attention, it doesn't get as, that much attention. But it's a really interesting, fascinating country. So I really enjoyed working on it. The desk officer means you're, at, you're in D.C. at a desk doing all things Laotian. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an uh, antiquated term. But, you know, generally that the, you have the Bureau of East Asian Affairs, which obviously looks over... Uh, at relations with East Asia. So you've got a China office. They call it the China desk. And you have in Southeast Asia, you have uh, a maritime Southeast Asian um, office with desk officers for Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, et cetera, and a mainland uh, Southeast Asia office with desk officers for Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar. Diplomats typically get moved all around the world. You've managed to uh, focus primarily on Southeast Asia. I think you had a couple postings in Europe, maybe. But um, is that uh, quite unusual? And how did how did that come about? Yeah, I was curious about that. Usually, you don't get to pick and choose. I mean, wow. Um, yes and no. Um, the way it often works is people. Uh, you can say where you would like to go, and it depends on the embassy in question or the bureau, you know, the you know, regional bureau in question, the South American bureau or the European bureau or the Near East bureau. And after you've worked in a region for a while, people get to know you. And if they think you're not too bad and you don't irritate too many people, they might want to keep hiring you for different jobs. And I really enjoyed Southeast Asia and was, you know, after a while got uh, to be known by the people in the East Asia Bureau, and they were kind enough to keep offering me good jobs in the region. Can I do, can I jump in with a with an NPR question here? I'm, I'm doing I'm, I'm doing my best, Terry Gross. But that day when you showed up in Hanoi with your I, I imagine your your letter from the president is in this like this leather folder, and you show up in a tie, and there's like a, a a hall of flags, and you hand over the thing. What was that like? Were, those, were they all looking at you at a, askance or, or bugles playing? Or like what? <laughs> I mean, talk about an important moment. Wow. What, what, were you, what was going through your head? Well, it was, 
it wasn't quite that dramatic, uh, to be honest. We had had a small military office there, uh, people working on the accounting for missing Americans. And so there was agreement in Washington and with the Vietnamese to open a small State Department office. And I was sent out to open that office. But we still didn't have diplomatic relations. We still had a trade embargo against Vietnam. Um, and so, and I was not a senior officer. I was a, you know, very much a mid-level officer. So, you know, I showed up at Hanoi airport, was met by a, a mid-level officer from the foreign ministry, greeted me, said, welcome to Hanoi. And I, I went off with the, the major in the U.S. military office there, and he started showing me around. So no bugles, no flags. No blue and white plane, no motorcade. No, no, no right. letter from the president. I was carrying oh, right. a lot of I was carrying a lot of cash. Ah. Because of the embargo, we had to do everything by cash. So I had to open an office, rent a hotel room, everything with cash. So I literally walked in with like $40,000 of cash and the kind people at the embassy in Bangkok who gave it to me said, you know, <laughs> if, like you get robbed, <laughs> if you get robbed, um, it's your loss. You, you're responsible. So I was walking in uh, holding that, holding on to that cash. I think, I think the ambassador to Iraq uh, was able to bring in $2 billion. So that's, uh, that was a whole nother magnitude. But uh, so you've uh, distilled your entire career into uh, this uh, book, which I'm, I'm holding up for our audio listeners in front of the camera here. And uh, tell us about the process. Uh, th this is a book. This is a totally unique book. It, it, it doesn't fill a niche or plug a gap. It, uh, it envelops a canyon because there's been so such poor understanding about Southeast Asia for so long. And here you've got this uh, entire diplomatic career over the past 30 years that you've been able to uh, distill. Um, <clears throat> how long did it take you to write it? And um, what, what was the process like? Yeah, it took me about a year to write it, including a lot of research. When I got to Stanford, I was still with the State Department and they assigned me, kindly assigned me to Stanford for a year as a visiting fellow. When I got to Stanford, I said, okay, what do you want me to do to the Stanford people? And they said, write a book. And I said, well, I haven't written anything longer than five pages in 35 <laughs> years. They said, I said, write a book about what? They said, well, you know, about your experience in Southeast Asia. So I didn't want to write a travelogue or a memoir. I mean, to, to write a memoir, you've got to either have an incredible resume or an incredible ego or both. And I, didn't, I certainly didn't have the resume, and I don't think I had the ego. But what I, so what I decided to do is to write about U.S. relations with different countries in Southeast Asia, the ones that I had spent a lot of time in and worked the most closely. I didn't try to make it comprehensive. And I, so I did a lot of research and wrote about the relations really during the Cold War period up till uh, the present day. And I threw in anecdotes from my own experience, but tried not to make it all about me, uh, but just the anecdotes to, to sort of illustrate examples of how things work, offer some insights, that sort of thing. So uh, now, it, looking back, I, I make it sound easy. It took me months to figure out how to organize it. And then I just started writing. And once I started writing, um, it... it came pretty easily. I, I didn't realize it was going to be quite as long as it turned out to be. It's a pretty long book, uh, but that was the process. Do you, do you keep journals? I was wondering, how did you, you, oh, you don't. 
You wish you had? Um, yeah, it would have been useful, uh, but I don't – I was just so busy most of the time that the last no. thing I wanted to do at the end of the day was come home and, and, <laughs> and write. But I – you know, I remember, obviously, I didn't remember a lot of things, but I remembered just a lot of key points, key developments, or, or particular anecdotes, things that just happened that's like, wow, and it, you still remember it 20 years later. And then I had to do a lot of research and, and talk to a lot of people, some of whom helped me refresh or correct my memory. Well, I, I have this question about you know, countering China's influence in the region. It seems like the military bit pretty much intact. You got AUKUS, you got the bases in the Philippines, uh, you've got the rights of navigation that are that the U.S. Navy are conducting. It, it seems like the military aspect is there. Um, the diplomatic aspect is there. You got the Indo-Pacific framework, um, and uh, you know, Biden showing up to G20. In, in, in Bali last year. That's, that was really important. I don't know if Trump would have. If you were the undersecretary for Southeast Asia, something that I mean, could have happened uh, in, that, in that range of expertise, what would your advice be to the White House about getting it right, getting the, the recipe right? Counter, but engage. Don't, don't overstep your bounds with, with ASEAN, but Keep them closed. Like, what, what, what's your recipe for keeping China, or countering China's influence in the region? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, my, my view is probably different from a lot of people's. My view is that the focus shouldn't be on countering China, as, because China's going to be there. All the countries of Southeast Asia are going to want to work with China. They have to work with China. Uh, countering that per se, I don't think is the goal in the sense of trying to limit that. But balancing rather, then, balancing. Yeah, um, countering probably is a bad, a bad term. Yeah, but, but certainly I think the best thing we can do strategically, both for ourselves and for Southeast Asia, is to make sure we have as strong as possible partnerships with the countries of Southeast Asia, um, ba you know, based on our own merit, you know, whether it's trade or security or working on climate change, what have you. And to the extent that we have a really good relationship with most of Southeast Asia, and not only us, but Australia, Japan, Korea, and others, it gives those countries more maneuvering room. They may still choose to work closely with China. That's up to them. But at least they have the freedom of maneuver. And so for, for us to do that, we need to, one, show up consistently from the president on down to do all we can to increase the confidence Southeast Asians have that our commitment to Southeast Asia is real and durable. You know, we, we hurt ourselves. We show up three or four years in a row. Then we don't show up for a few years. Then we show up. So, right, in Southeast Asia right now, I think the Biden team has done a pretty good job of showing up. But the question is, what happens after 2024? So that consistent engagement is one. Two, boosting the economic side of our engagement, which obviously is hard right now on the trade side, but whatever we can do to, you know, help build infrastructure, uh, do things like make sure that we do everything possible to implement this new just energy transition partnership with Indonesia and also with Vietnam, just be active and engaged on all those issues. And, you know, so when we go to Southeast Asia, the conversation should be about Southeast Asia, not about China.
Um, and last but not least is stay engaged as much as possible, even when things don't go well. Uh, and when there's democratic backsliding, uh, as we've seen, for example, in Thailand, um, it doesn't mean business as usual, but staying engaged, the exception being with the generals in Myanmar who we shouldn't be engaging with. Is that a, is that a slippery slope sometimes knowing when to use sanctions and, and when not to? Yeah, I mean, my take on sanctions is that sanctions are a go-to convenient tool, right? The U.S. controls them. We can slap them on, shows that we're doing something. They sometimes have value, but a lot of times they're not very effective. And when we don't know what else to do and a country's done something we don't like, sometimes we'll sanction them. Again, I'm not saying there's no place for them, but I think we should try to be a little bit more creative we tend to, you know, sanction, disengage, publicly call out. Those are our kind of go-to tools. There's a place for them. But, I mean, if you look at the aftermath of the coup in Thailand in 2014, and I was part of the decision-making process on this, so I fault myself, we disengaged too much. Again, it's not that we should have said nothing or invited General Prayut to the White House the next week. Absolutely not. But disengaging for three or four years didn't didn't change Thai behavior. Um, so we have to recognize the world's changed and uh, we need to try to maintain, keep lines of communication open and have a little bit more nuance in our approach. I want to ask about a couple of the tools in the toolbox. Uh, during your tenure in Indonesia, one was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which then President Trump revoked and uh, support for that is still lacking in Washington. The uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, um, is that something that's developing into something real in your mind? It's too early to say. I hope so. Uh, yeah, pulling out of Trans-Pacific Partnership was a huge strategic mistake, uh, but it's done. And as you said, there doesn't seem to be political support in Washington for you know climbing back on that train. So it's important that we make the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework as substantive and tangible as possible. Uh, and I think there are efforts underway, talks underway. I'm not privy to all the details, but it is important that in the end, there's economic benefits that accrue to all the countries that participate in it. Uh, so it's not looked at five or 10 years from now as just some empty bit of rhetoric. And uh, yeah, my father was in the Navy, so I have to ask this question. You know, there's not a lot of democratic countries in ASEAN. Um, maybe Thailand is becoming more democratic just this past weekend, but uh, we can get to that later. Uh, and then, as we've discussed, the, the grounds for free trade agreements is difficult. Uh, is the U.S. Navy something that countries are looking at more uh, with, with more interest nowadays, given the overall world security situation? And does this provide U.S. diplomats with another tool to use as they try to um, engage Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think the U.S. military as a whole, and as you suggested in, in the Asia-Pacific region, the Navy plays a, a really critical role. It's a huge asset for us. A lot of countries in the region like working with the U.S. military and the U.S. Navy. So um, the, the problem we have is an imbalance where we have to rely too heavily on that pillar. And it's, that's not a criticism of the Navy or the U.S. military. They're doing their job uh, very well. Uh, we're just uh, not doing enough of the, things, the other things we should be doing. Or sometimes we're actually doing them, but we don't, we don't talk about them effectively. 
Um, for example, we do fantastic partnerships in public health, uh, all kinds of things with a lot of investment of, of money and expertise uh, uh, throughout the whole region. And we've spent billions of dollars on public health there with to a good effect, but almost nobody knows about it. So some of the work that needs to happen is doing a better job of telling those stories. I just, I want to pick up on the health bit. If you remember like, during COVID, there's a bit of a narrative on um, vaccine diplomacy. And China was first out of the gate with, with their vaccines, which had mixed results. Uh, and, and America, with U, U.S. investment in health and, and that, that health funding um, just makes me think, I don't really have a question here, but ultimately I think the U.S. probably did win the, the, the vaccine diplomacy. It, was, it turned out to be effective. So I, sorry, I don't, I don't really have a point there, but I, I, I take it. <laughs> So yeah. it's just something oh, I, a brain fart. This happens to me sometimes, sorry. <laughs> no, but I think it's an important point. I mean, we were slow out of the gate for sure. And, uh, but in the end, I think we delivered a significant number of vaccines that were, that were highly effective. But even before that, we had done a lot of work with national laboratories and others helping countries develop their national laboratories and their health systems. In Myanmar, USAID worked with the Ministry of Health, you know, this is obviously before the coup, um, on programs that cut the incidence of malaria by 80%. Uh, again, the Myanmar Health Ministry and doctors deserve a lot of credit for that, not just the U.S., but the U.S. provided a lot of funding for it. So there's there's been a lot of uh, that type of cooperation. I want to ask about pro-democracy efforts and uh, should the U.S. be doing more in that area, especially in Indonesia? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a tough one. Obviously, the U.S. is is always going to support democracy and human rights. And I think overall, that's that's a plus for us. Some governments may not like it, but I think publics in general do, depending on how we do it. Uh, I think, you know, obviously, the best way to do it is to lead by example, something we've struggled to do a little bit in the last few years. Uh, but Supporting, um, supporting groups within countries that are promoting democracy and human rights, uh, civil society, independent media, those sorts of things, uh, hugely important. And there's very vibrant civil society in much of Southeast Asia. Uh, before I went out as ambassador to Indonesia, I used to visit pretty regularly. And I always asked the embassy to schedule my last meeting with civil society. Because even though sometimes civil society people will complain about all the things that are wrong, I, I always left feeling like, look at the energy and the dedication here. And you see that throughout the region. So I, I think supporting those, those groups, those entities, those individuals is, is really important. Uh, but it's a tough go because throughout Southeast Asia, you've got entrenched elites, just like you have elsewhere in the world that you know, are really resistant to change. And, you know, we'll see now in Thailand in the coming weeks how that entrenched elite is going to respond to the election results. Uh, it's going to be pretty, pretty significant. I have no predictions there. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's a huge opportunity. You said in uh, your interview with the Asia Foundation that it's not 1991 anymore. Uh, I think uh, you went on to say uh, world leaders don't wake up in the morning wondering what America thinks of them. Um, 
they've got alternatives. There are other shows in town. There is more coming. So how do you project and, and, and cement democratic values, the rights of the individual, the freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, freedom of, freedom of the press? How do you do that in a world of Xi Jinping's and Vladimir Putin's? Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy, especially when we've got our own struggles in the United States these days on the democracy front. So, but I think, I think we have to understand that you know, we can't dictate or pressure governments into. But know, we shouldn't. Never should have. Right. Fair enough. I I agree. I agree. So lecturing and and you know sanctioning are not tools that I think are very useful. I think, yeah. as I said. Supporting independent media, uh, supporting civil society, supporting good governance any way we can when it's happening. Um, Quiet diplomacy, uh, where sometimes that can make a difference, and usually more in in terms of handling individual cases of human rights violations, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think supporting local organic democratic forces the, sweat, uh, the small uh, stuff, go granular, go like, as, as Joko Widodo would say, go to the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think, again, everywhere I've been, you have those movements, you have those forces uh, that are trying to bring about change, you know, each in their own way. And, you know, we have to be careful not to do something that makes it look like they're somehow agents of the United States. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of groups, organizations, individuals in the region who have been working at this and anything we can do to highlight their work, support their work. Uh, sometimes it's within, you know, civil society groups, you know, helping them, teaching them things like budgeting and how to write grant proposals and those sorts of things. It's not directly teaching democracy, but it's, it's helping them build their skill set. Uh, so that they can be more effective. Has uh, Indonesia's democratization reflected Indonesia's better luck, or, or do you see some factors that differentiate Indonesia from some of the other countries in Southeast Asia that have really struggled, and or even with the Philippines, which is also democratic, but it's a very different kind of democratic system? Yeah, I think Indonesia, to me, is still a, a really great success story. I know there's concerns about you know the direction right now, uh, but when I look at when I look at what's happened over the last thirty years uh, in Indonesia, it is pretty remarkable. Um, and I think it's it's the Indonesian people, it's civil society, it's some politicians making good decisions at critical times that allowed Indonesia to overcome that you know period of intense turmoil. And, and a fair amount of violence to come out on the other end with a you know pretty solid democracy. I think one of the things that struck me, and I compare this to, to in Myanmar, is that I think Indonesia, for a diverse country, has overall done a pretty good job at building a sense of nation, which Myanmar hasn't. Uh, you know, it, and and you know, people in Papua and others may not, may disagree with that, but I think as a general rule, it it has been pretty inclusive, uh, and I think that's you know that's hugely important. And then you have some of the you know the big not only political parties but but 
groups like Nandotal Ulama and Muhammadiyah that have had a significant amount of influence that have generally, in my view, played a helpful role in terms of democracy and pluralism. So I, I think it's a variety of things. One other potential advantage when you look at someone like President Jokowi is, you know, he came out of being a mayor. And I think having good, having the opportunity to practice good governance at the local level is really important. As again, something in Myanmar where it's heavily centralized, you don't have mayors or strong city councils or anybody. So there's no sort of, there's no institutional way for politicians to develop from the local level and potentially rise up to the national level. So I, I think that's significant. Yeah, that's gratifying because I waffle on about that constantly. So thanks. <laughs> uh, it, one of the great things about the book is that you use personal vignettes, but you link them up to big concepts. So can you recount your experience in the 1980s as a uh, junior consular officer uh, checking the uh, applications for visas? Yeah. One of the things at the State Department, almost everybody who joins the State Department as a foreign service officer spends their first assignment as a consular officer, mostly doing visa work. And the Philippines generates a lot of visa work. There's a lot of Filipinos who are seeking to come to the U.S. either as visitors or as, as immigrants. And there's a, there was, at least when I was there, there was a lot of, of fraud, you know, because we would say under U.S. law, the traveler has to show that they've got ties to their home country that would cause them to come home rather than to stay illegally in the U.S., right? So if you have a good job, you've got, you own a home, you've got family, whatever, those sorts of things. So people who didn't have the documents to prove that would just go buy documents, uh, which were easily, easily had uh, then. So one time when I was running the anti-fraud unit, we said, well, let's just check all the documents that came in that day. And everybody had fake documents. Everybody. <laughs> well, a lot of those people, a certain percentage of those people were very legitimate travelers. But the word had gone around that you had to have these documents. And sometimes people didn't have them. So they just wanted to get them. How many applications are we talking about? Oh, for example, for tourist visas, you'd get you know, 120, 150 a day. <laughs> and so. Um, so you run an audit and you found that hundreds of applications that day, all of them. Yeah, every single one, every single one of them, which is actually not very useful information because you know that some of these people are legitimate travelers. But what it highlighted also was, you know, a lot of people, they didn't want to keep their money in the banks. They mm. didn't trust the banks, right? Or they way under declared their income on their tax returns. So their formal tax return might show that they earned a paltry amount, but in fact, they earned more. Right. So people, because they didn't have faith in the system, went around the system. And so when you asked them to come up with the official documents, they were stuck. And so it reflected just the lack of trust and confidence in government, in the banking sector, et cetera. Yeah, that was one of the themes that you emphasized uh, in your section on Indonesia as well, uh, which I thought was really useful. Yeah. Also, during your tenure in Indonesia, you talked about uh, WikiLeaks. Um, yeah. Uh, can you uh, uh, sort of recap uh, what happened there? Sure. Well, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the uh, WikiLeaks scandal led to the release of a lot of documents from embassies around the world that had been classified. And there were some that had been from our embassy in Jakarta. They, they had been written long before I got there, but it didn't matter. They came out when I was there. And some of them were mildly embarrassing to some key political figures. There was nothing as as horribly embarrassing as what we saw in some other countries, but stuff that was mildly embarrassing. And so uh, Foreign Minister uh, Marty Nadalagawa called me in to his office to, to complain. Uh, and uh, so we had a pretty good talk about it. He oh, no, was, no, 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 pretty good talk. What happened? I, I, I can, I'm trying to imagine <laughs> Marty across the table from you. So how, what was it like? Well, he, Please, he, you know, he's, he's a consummate pro. Yes. So he said, you know, this is a real problem for us. It's really embarrassing. It's, it, it's raises a lot of questions about, you know, the, the, our relationship with the United States. I've got press out there that I've got to go talk to. So, you know, I have to basically um, complain strongly to you. He said in a very mild tone. <laughs> um, and so we talked a little bit about how to respond publicly to this. And I, he said, you know, you're coming out with me to talk to the press. Um, so, you know, how do you want to handle this? And I said, well, what I'm going to, what I would propose saying, Minister, is that embassies around the world, U.S. embassies at least, I don't know if other embassies do this, they report a lot of things that they're told. Now, we don't, you know, if some taxi driver, no offense to taxi drivers, says, hey, I think this, we don't necessarily report it. But, you know, if it's something that seems potentially credible or you hear it from a few people, you may report it. It doesn't mean that it's fact. It doesn't necessarily even mean that you're sure it's true, but you it's report intel. it. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're painting a picture for bosses back home. Yeah. Right. So I would propose just saying that, that there's a lot of raw data, a lot of raw information that gets fed from embassies. That's part of the reason it's classified is because, you know, you, you can't, you know, you, you have to feel comfortable that this stuff isn't going to go public because if it were, you'd have to be really a lot more careful. You're not, a, you're not necessarily attaching significance to it. You're not just, you're just fire hosing data and seeing what, and try and then others pick out patterns. Right. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that we just, you know, vacuum up everything and send everything. But sometimes there'll be and I don't remember the particular cases in, in Indonesia that were brought up, but it might be so and so. Hey, several people have passed on this rumor that, you know, politician X, Y or Z said this or is doing that. You, you may not know if it's true, but it's not you can't dismiss it. And so you pass it on. So we, we went with that. And he went out and spoke to the press, and then I spoke to the press. And it, it kind of, a week later, it was done as a story. Feels like it was quite effective. Is, it, is there a change in the way that uh, these things work nowadays after the, the Snowden affair and then most recently with the Pentagon documents leak? Uh, is it more difficult or different for diplomats and intelligence officials to work? Yeah, I mean... Um, 
particularly right after WikiLeaks, you know, some people will be a little bit more hesitant to talk to us uh, for sure because they don't want to have or they would be hesitant to say be too frank. Um, and again, we're not talking about people who are passing along state secrets or something. They're just, you know, people who, hey, this is what I think. Um, so, yeah, that was a challenge for a while. We, we, as a general rule, I think we were more careful about, you know, whether we, we would, you know, always mention who specifically told us something uh, just in case. Um, so I, I think it had some effect. I don't know how much effect it has still today. I, I think it gradually kind of returned to the, the norm uh, after a year or two. Or conversely, are diplomats becoming more of a topic of interest? Uh, there's a book uh, called uh, The Diplomats, the Profiles for U.S. Ambassadors. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago. It was uh, quite high profile. And now, of course, there's The Diplomat on Netflix, a uh, series about the ambassador. Yeah, I haven't brought my story. Are you followed around by paparazzi now? <laughs> no, no, it's funny. I haven't brought myself to watch The Diplomat. Um, I would prefer that they had a show about our ambassador in Papua New Guinea or in you know Ghana or in Bolivia, uh, because that's more real to me. No offense to an ambassador or any diplomats in London, but most of diplomatic life isn't quite like that. Can I just pick up on that, actually, now that I've seen a couple? It's great television, but I've met, I've known quite a lot of ambassadors in my life, and I don't take this the wrong way, but kind of like you, ambassador, they're you know, knowledgeable, even keel, each day pretty much like they are pretty stable all every day. They're polite, considered, thoughtful. I don't say too much, just say enough get on with the job. So when I'm thinking about that day, when you were hauled into the foreign minister's office, that's not just any day. That was the story in the world that day. It was, that was headline in the New York Times. You were the guy in Jakarta, and all eyes were on you. And you know, maybe your anxiety level was a little higher that day. But my sense from talking with you here is that well, it was just part of the job. And so I just wonder... What's a, what does it take to be a successful diplomat? The, uh, the, the character in the di on, on The Diplomat is kind of highly strong. And I've got to do the job. But you're a little bit more laid back, and that's a really good question. There's two ways to think about that. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of us are, are pretty hyper-caffeinated uh, when we're in the, in the job <laughs> so busy. Um, and so, you know, and I wasn't immune to that. I, I think I did a pretty good job of overall of, of keeping, you know, my uh, emotions in check. Not always, but you know, that, that's kind of the culture and it doesn't mean people don't have pretty strong emotions or, or strong feelings about things, but that the culture is to be a little bit dispassionate. And if I could, I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote of where that was really, that really was bad. Um, in Myanmar, during the during the height of the Rohingya crisis, which, as I said, was just a horrific human rights and humanitarian tragedy, we were getting a lot of heat from Washington, including from some members of Congress and, and others, for you know not having solved this somehow. And we were also getting a lot of heat from the Myanmar authorities who thought we were being too tough on them, but that's a different issue. 
And we had a, con- a group of congressional staffers who came out and we briefed them. And I thought we gave them a pretty good briefing. I found out later they went back to Washington and they ripped into me in particular and, and the rest of the embassy to a certain extent because we weren't angry. Um, we're angry enough. We weren't angry enough. And I, I thought about that and I, you know, yes and no. I mean, we were all, everybody there in the diplomatic community, not just Americans, you know, night after night of sleepless night and stomach churning and stress. I mean, our suffering was nothing compared to what the Rohingya went through. So don't get me wrong. But, you know, there was a lot of stress. But, you know, we had been dealing with this for months. And you can't, at least I can't function at that level of anger and frustration on a daily basis. But what I had failed to do was recognize the need of people coming out from Washington who were really angry about this that I had failed to recognize the need to show that we also felt really strongly about it. And we gave a dispassionate analysis. So they, I think they were wrong in, in expecting us to, you know, maintain and show a high level of anger every day of our, our jobs over months. But I was, you know, I failed as a leader in terms of saying, Hey, we need to, show how we really feel because it wasn't, you know, it was nothing we had to make up. We all felt really strongly about it. Right. That, that training right. came in and we, we went too dispassionate, which was bad. I have to uh, just say, you, you, uh, Ambassador Marcel, your section on Myanmar was a page turner. I couldn't put it down. Uh, and it was really illuminating because you know, I've, I've been a casual observer of Myanmar for uh, all this time never really understanding how the pieces fit together. I've always been very cloudy about it. And it was just, it was really revelatory to see how things fit together. And it explains so much of what's transpired in Myanmar. So um, how do you see things now? Is, uh, is, it a, is it a hopeless situation right now? Um, it's not hopeless, but it, it, the outlook is for things to remain pretty grim for a while. I don't know how long a while is because you basically have a military that's incredibly brutal and and has no problem engaging in indiscriminate violence on a daily basis um, and is hated, has really almost no support in the country. And then you have, in effect, a kind of a national uprising against it. One of the few things that's actually united people from different ethnic communities is we, we can't live like this. We lived under the military for all those decades. We had a taste of at least, if not perfect democracy and freedom, at least a lot more freedom and opportunity. And now the military has just come in and taken it away. So this is really a a national uprising. They would call it a revolution. And I don't see the people backing down, but the military doesn't care how many people they have to kill. And they don't care how much suffering there is. They just don't care. Does Um, Thailand uh, fit into this? Yeah, Thailand does. The uh, Prayut government has been pretty supportive of the junta. They have a pretty good relationship with the leader of the junta. Um, it's unfortunate, uh, to say the least, and they've they've made it difficult to get humanitarian assistance in, uh, and and for people fleeing violence to be able to have a safe place on the Thai side of the border. Um, so I you know certainly would like to see Thailand take a different approach, but it's not only Thailand. 
I mean, India has been pro junta. China oh. certainly is pro junta. So the neighbors in general have been, in my view, pretty unhelpful. The pro junta because they can keep the people from pouring into their borders. Is that well? And I, I think it's also just they need. You know, I think the Chinese they'll work with whoever has power in the capital in Naypyidaw. India, I'm not so sure. I think they're competing for influence with with China, and they also need that military's help on some border issues. I think it's short sighted um, because I don't see this military being able to govern. They're under tremendous pressure, taking huge casualties. I don't see them being able to govern the country. Um, and so I think the outlook, sadly, is for more of what we've been seeing for months until and unless the international community makes more of an effort to be on the side of the overwhelming majority of the public, uh, which wants the military out of power. I wanted to ask you, I mean, you talked about the performative aspects. Sometimes you, in your character, maybe comes a bit more difficult, but you feel these things nonetheless. And you say you're highly caffeinated. And that's not, that's not a joke. You are, at the end of the day, a public servant working on DC hours on the other side of the world most of the time. And you're not alone. There are many, this is par for the course. It's not all, it's not all parties and, 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 and meeting dignitaries. You're, it's a lot of grunt work. A lot of hours, and I'm wondering about what you do when it comes to mental health. Not only your own, but also your family, because your your family pays a price too. Yeah, what's that looking like now? Yeah, well, the State Department, like a lot of places, talks about work life balance, but you, know, you don't got one. <laughs> no, not not a whole lot. I mean, I think what I learned early on is you have to set limits. You know, you work. I mean, I. I I'd say my experience in the State Department, Foreign Service and Civil Service officers, most Americans have no idea how incredibly hard these people are working on a daily basis. I mean, there are, there's no such thing as an eight-hour day or a 40-hour week. It just, you know, that would be such an exception. And they, and they work hard. And, you know, people say, oh, well, I'm not into politics. I'm not interested. It's like, we're not politicians. We're public servants. Right? We, we work for Republicans, Democrats, whatever. And most People are trying to solve problems. That's the focus. What can we do to solve this problem or, or build on this opportunity? So it's a lot of work. You have to set limits. You have to set personal limits. Like this is how I'm willing to work really hard, but I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Sometimes you don't take a, a job that might be a good opportunity because the hours are even worse or the travel schedule is even worse. And then it's um, it's gotten harder in the days of constant communication because, you know, people expect you to be yeah. looking at your phone yeah. Yeah. 24-7. So, you know, at times you have to just put it away um, and and spend time. I mean, I, you know, my wife and I raised two, two daughters throughout this. And, you know, it was really important to me to spend a lot of time with them. So, uh, but it's it's hard. But I think it's like a lot of people who are working. You know, there's just not enough time. Uh, work, commute, all the errands you have to run, and then, you know, raising a family. So, um, but you're right. It's not the, the image that you usually see in Hollywood of people at cocktail parties sipping martinis. No. <laughs> uh, what you, you've, you've got the longstanding uh, ties to some uh, very senior policymakers in the Biden administration now. 
Uh, are you providing some input sometimes? And uh, have you got a next uh, role in mind now that uh, the book is out there on shelves? Um, yeah, I mean, not not really in terms of, uh, I mean, I, I happened to talk to a, a, a colleague today working on Asia, Southeast Asia issues, but not that much um, in terms of engagement with uh, people in government. Uh, they They're busy. And, you know, the last thing they want is for, some retired guy to run around and say, Oh, Hey, I've got ideas. Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty much settled in California. I'm working at Stanford, um, and, uh, at the Asia Pacific research center, uh, where I'm doing some research. I'm actually like doing research right now on, on the clean energy transition in Southeast Asia, uh, something I'm just learning about. So no, I, I, I had, I loved my career. I wouldn't have traded for the world. Uh, Lots of hours, but it was just so fascinating. And I got to do all kinds of interesting things and witness, you know, do my Forrest Gump witness a lot of history. But now, you know, that, that's done. And I'm, I'm happy to be moving at a slower pace now and try to, you know, contribute where I can in terms of ideas and so on, but not, not looking for, you know, another position in the administration or anything like that. Got, a, got a one final question for you, sir, about the Diplomat, um, the Netflix series. The U.S. Embassy in London, it's kind of, I don't know, are you familiar with uh, Star Trek? Looks like it's a Borg ship. It's like it's a cube. Uh, you tell us here, right, was it intended for it I, Star Trek? Yeah. <laughs> I've never been in that embassy. I think that's a new embassy, and I, I haven't been in it. So I, I don't know what it's really like. Most embassies, um, I mean, they vary widely, but most embassies are rather ordinary. Right. Show me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, 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 you know, perfectly fine. You've got, a, you know, usually a lot of security, but there's no whiz bang, you know, science fiction like stuff, at least none of the places I served. Well, there's going to be one in Ottawa. So if a position shows uh, pops up, would you consider coming out of retirement, serving in Ottawa? <laughs> Uh, too cold. <laughs> what? <laughs> it is. Okay, we're, we're out of time. We're out of time now. I think we got to get wrap it up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ambassador Scott Marcial. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us to uh, discuss your book and your career uh, and uh, ASEAN and uh, Indonesia. And thank you for uh, yeah, not being too angry with us. <laughs> Imperfect partners, right. I think. Uh, it's going to be the title of, uh, of, of of Kevin's book on hosting this podcast. <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> Perfect co-host. Uh, thank you for your part. service. <laughs> thank you. All the very best. Good to see you. And that's the pod. Thanks so much to former Ambassador Scott Marcial for joining our editing and sound engineering is done by Stephen Handoko. Our music is courtesy of the Blue Dot Sessions. For a free two-week trial of Kevin's Reformasi weekly newsletter, go to reformasi.info. You can support us by donating at buymeacoffee.com slash reformasi. You can follow us on Twitter at reformasi underscore pod or email us the old-fashioned way at hello at onthelevel.id. If you're listening to us through a podcast app, Please subscribe. It's a big help. This podcast is a production of On the Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.